The word today is from the book of the prophet Micah. We've been going through the minor prophets. They're pretty small books, so I'll give you a moment while I fill the air with my voice to find Micah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. And we're going to go right to the end of Micah today. The last three verses. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's ask God to reveal Himself to us through this word. God, we admit that we are weak, we are broken, still sin remains in our flesh, and we long to be rid of it. We don't see as we ought, we don't hear your words of truth. And so, we pray, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us, you would open our hearts, our eyes, our ears, you would soften us that we would receive this and we would bear much fruit that would be useful to love our neighbors, love our city, send people with hope into the depths of this earth to make Christ known. We thank You that You promise to do these things. Not because of who we are. God, I am humbled that You would use me to bring Your Word. We are thankful that You can use any of us because it's Your Spirit, Your Word that does the work. Just like You used five words from Jonah to transform a city, You can use this small church to transform this one. Would You fill us now with Your Spirit and enlighten us that we may give You all the glory in our lives. Amen. Even though Jerome grew up on the wrong side of town, surrounded by the wrong types of people, raised by a single mom who had to work two jobs just to provide for him, he was determined to do better as an adult for his family. For a little while, he did get caught up as a teenager in in the culture, but when his girlfriend got pregnant, it was a wake-up call. He knew he had to do something different to change the pattern of his own family. Even though he had no example of a good marriage, no positive male role models, he knew he had to do the right thing. Jerome did his best to plan what this child needed. He knew, as far as he could tell, that this child needed a mother and a father. So, he moved in with his girlfriend. He was going to be there for his daughter like his father wasn't for him. He moved in with his girlfriend. He picked up a job at the local market working extra hours. They applied for government assistance. And together they began to build their own family. 
But it wasn't a happy ending for Jerome. Because his girlfriend's sister had already been living there in the apartment with her. And she didn't quite like Jerome. Gets all this praise for showing up like some hero at the last minute when she was there through the whole pregnancy. In her mind, he was a loser who had to go. So she called the cops and said, there's an unwelcome man in my home. And sure enough, because she was the registered tenant of the apartment and he was not, the police removed him from his daughter and his girlfriend. And when they investigated the situation a little more due to technicalities in the law that defined their living arrangement, they found the mother in violation of the welfare rules. She was convicted of welfare fraud, losing everything she had to care for her child. Jerome tried to do everything he could, everything that was right as far as he could tell. He had no example of a good marriage to follow. He wasn't an expert in housing and welfare law. And because he had no money, he had no ability to fight back. And it was all taken away. Due to technicalities in the law, he was doomed to fall back into the same pattern as his own father, despite his best intentions and efforts. It seemed like justice had won the day and mercy was pushed aside for another time. How do we balance these two ideas of justice and mercy? How do they fit together? Do they at all? We need to be a people who live under the order of law. But law shouldn't be to destroy the people. God's law was intended to give life, to display God's mercy. It seems to me that the more that we see justice and mercy in opposition to each other, the further our hearts are from understanding the character of God. This is where Micah finds his people in his prophecy, in this book we're looking at today. The prophet Micah looked all around the nation and he saw everywhere corruption, bribery, oppression. His leaders, the religious leaders, the kings, the rulers of the area, they all seemed to be doing the right things going through the religious rituals, speaking the right words, holding court proceedings that followed law, apparently. But when he looked around, the fruit of oppression was everywhere. This isn't the, re the result, Micah thought, of a people who have humbled themselves before the mighty hand of God. And so Micah rises up to confront the nation with the truth that mercy and justice meet together in God's covenant love. Mercy and justice meet in God's covenant love. The people of Israel, they, they think that they are in the will of God. They're doing all the right things. Keeping all the social and religious rituals. And they have wonderful prosperity at this time in their history. So in their minds, the prosperity is a blessing from God for doing the right thing. But doing what is right isn't simply following the law technically. What is right is what displays God's mercy most clearly. Mercy and justice will meet in God's covenant love. And we're going to explore two sides of that covenant love, the justice and mercy of God, in these last three verses of the book of Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. 
On the one hand, we see the justice of God throughout this story as He brings upon Israel what they have put upon others. But then we see countering this throughout the story also a balance of the mercy of God on display. Micah wants us to know who this God is so that we can bring it all together in His covenant love and we would be shaped to be just like Him to spread this love throughout the earth. So was justice done in Jerome's case? According to the established law, the appropriate action was taken. He was removed from the house. Welfare was discontinued because of fraud. Would it have been more right to show mercy and just ignore what the laws say? This conflict in our minds reveals to us that we don't have a full understanding of God's character, of biblical justice and mercy. It must be defined in light of God's covenantal love. Biblical justice doesn't keep the law at the expense of people. And mercy doesn't ignore the law. They are two sides of the same coin that focus our attention on the character of God. If we're going to keep, seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, as Micah so famously says in chapter 6, we better get a better idea of what those words mean. So let's start by looking at what the justice of God is. We'll begin in verse 18 and then jump back to the beginning of the book. Verse 18 says again, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. These last three verses of the book of Micah are basically a summary of what the whole book is all about. Throughout this prophecy, Micah wants us to know that the motivation for true justice and mercy is the character of God. Look at this God. Who is like Him? He ends the book. But this is the theme of the whole story. The beginning of the book starts with the same question in the name of the prophet Micah. Micah's very name means who is like Yahweh. This God full of justice and mercy. If we want to understand justice and mercy, if we want to be like Him, we need to understand who He is. And the first thing we notice about this God is that He hates sin. Verse 18 is telling us that He is angry about iniquity and transgression. As we've seen throughout the Minor Prophets, there are serious consequences for sin. It's not good for people standing in the path of God's wrath. Every one of the prophets has warned us of coming judgment. God is just. He always judges rightly. That is, He sees sin and He punishes wrongdoing wherever it's found. And He rewards righteousness when He sees it. There is no partiality with Him. There's no favor giving to preferred types of people. So, we see this justice of God way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 18, when God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. And Lot protests, said, Aren't, won't you be compassionate on them? Save the city, preserve the city. 
and God corrects him. He rebukes him, saying, Shall not the judge of earth do what is just? If God is a good judge, He must punish sin wherever it is found. It is right that people who break God's law must face judgment. And He doesn't pick favorites in this judgment. He doesn't pick those who He's going to go easy on. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter reminds us, there is no partiality with God. He cannot be bribed. He's not impressed by your attempts to sway His decision making. Your deeds will not earn you good favor on the day He calls you to account for your sins. God despises people who act like that unjustly, who just brush sin aside. He will not be that Himself. And He hates when He sees it among His people. Numerous Old Testament texts tell us that God wants us to give fair treatment to the weak, the poor, the vulnerable of society. Widows, orphans, the foreigner. They should get an equal hearing in court. They should have equal mercy under the sacrificial system. So God promises He will execute vengeance on anyone who perverts His justice. This is what Micah sees among his brothers. Chapter 1 tells us he looks around Jerusalem and Samaria, representative of all of Israel and all of Judah, and he sees corruption everywhere. From the biggest city up on the top of the mountain spread to the smallest villages to the edges of the border. Injustice has spread like a virus. In three different parts, Micah breaks up his message in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6, calling them to hear, hear about this injustice that I found everywhere. He says, hear what is going on in the high places and in the low places. And For example, in chapter 2, Micah explains some of their sins. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. What's going on? Well, there's some influential people in town who would like that piece of property over there that's owned by a poor guy who's barely getting by. In fact, he knows that he's in great debt to my good buddy. So if I come along, then I can say, hey, how would I buy that land from you? You can pay off your debt and and we're all good. Well, it seems right. That's what the law allowed. But it was getting worse than that. It was leaving them stuck in poverty. There were laws that were supposed to allow them to get it back. If the father died, the landowner died, the law, the land was supposed to go back to the sons. Or every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, at no price, all land goes back to the original family. But they were finding their ways around it. They would adopt that family. They would go to the courts and say, I want to adopt that guy. And the judge would go, okay, sounds good. You're a pretty good upstanding citizen. And suddenly now all of that land is brought into my family lineage. They're finding loopholes in God's law in order to oppress people. These laws were given to prevent this very thing from happening. It was a great way of equalizing everyone in the nation so that nobody could oppress others as they had experienced for 400 years in Egypt where they would pass on slavery from one generation to another 
God said, that will not be so among my people. But as Micah surveys the land, this is exactly what he saw. Israel has become just like their Egyptian oppressors. How? Chapter 3, verse 11 says that the rich leadership had paid off the judges. They were bribing them. The judges should have stopped such actions and they would say, here, here's a hundred bucks in Israel money, I guess. And say, just give me a little favor. Why don't you ignore those laws that work in their favor? The, the priests were bribed. They would come to bring their sacrifices and the priests, they were supposed to be a check on the system and say, no, you do not get to bring your wickedness here unless you repent. And instead, no, let me offer a sacrifice and let you know that God is pleased with you. Good job. Even the prophets were bribed. The ones who were supposed to have the covenant law in their back pocket coming to the kings and saying, stop, don't go there or we will be destroyed. Instead, they're paid off to say, peace, peace, peace everywhere. God is at peace with us. See the prosperity? He's so happy with you all. And the poor were stuck. What could they do? The system that was given to them to find a way out of poverty is now being used against them. And they cry out to God for help. And God raises up the prophet Micah and Isaiah among them. Micah, from an unknown village, this guy from the low parts of society is going to come and turn things around. He has not been corrupted, yet Micah's mission will be a failure as well. For a moment, a brief moment, there was hope. When Hezekiah came to the throne and he heard Micah's warning, and Jeremiah 26 says there was a brief revival, Hezekiah heeded the words of Micah. He repented and he preserved the line of David, the promises of God. But after that, spiraled out of control again. Though Micah was calling them to hear his contemporary Isaiah had written in Isaiah chapter 6, there are people who have ears but cannot hear. They aren't going to hear your calls to repent. They're not going to heed your warnings because they are spiritually deaf. And they will be destroyed for it. So what does God say He's going to bring upon them? In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, God will return upon the people what they have brought upon others. It will be disastrous. They laughed at poor people when they stole their land. God will send enemies to taunt them in their time of misery. They stole land from their neighbors. Well, neighboring nations are on their way to take them out of their land too. At the end of chapter 3, God promises because they have made His holy city a den of injustice, He's going to level it. He's going to plow it like a field. It will be a heap of ruins. In chapter 6, after telling them what was expected of them, God says that no amount of burnt offerings is going to save you now. You have perverted my sacrificial system. Your sacrifices have just become empty rituals to cover your self-righteous pretense. You're not coming to me in my temple to remove your guilt and turn from your sin. So God, Micah says, will strike a grievous blow and make them desolate. God is just. 
meaning He will punish sin wherever He finds it. He will not let His holy name be mocked by people who claim to know Him, claim to represent Him, and yet continue to walk in sin. But desolation won't be the final word. Praise God. Every one of the prophets has also led us to some sliver of hope. And Micah is not any different. God is merciful. And though sin deserves punishment, God has promises that He still has to keep. So let's turn back to chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, and see this wonderful mercy of God. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You can see even in verse 18, I kind of glossed over it, but there's hope of mercy there as well. God pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. He does not retain His anger forever. It's hard to talk about the justice of God and ignore the mercy of God. The two in God's character are so intricately intertwined. They belong together. So when you talk about the justice of God, you've got to say it's not going to last forever because God is merciful. Yes, sin required punishment according to the law, but that same law had built into it mechanisms for atoning for that sin. So that mercy could be displayed without ignoring the law. Mercy, true mercy, godly mercy, is not setting aside the law. It's employing the law on behalf of the guilty person so that the consequences can be dealt with and they can be restored to the community. God knew His people were going to sin. That's why He put these extra laws in there, these provisions. And He also knew that they would pervert these provisions and they would abandon Him completely. He said that back in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30. Right when He handed them the law, He told them, I know you're going to fall away. You're going to pervert this and you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be judged. But I will preserve a remnant who will be brought back. And I will make a way that that remnant will never fall away ever again. That's been the promise from all the way at the beginning. Justice is rewarding righteousness and punishing sin. But mercy isn't just flipping that on its head and ignoring sin and righteousness. Instead, mercy is providing a legal way to atone for them. Micah picks up on this hope of restoration for the remnant in his book and he summarizes it here in verse 19. God's compassion will trample, tread, crush underfoot all of our iniquities. This should make you remember the promise all the way back at the beginning in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell. He promised Eve and Adam and and the serpent that a son of Eve will crush under his foot all temptation. He will crush the serpent's head once and for all. He says, Micah says that all of our sins will be cast into the sea. The sea has always been about judgment in their minds. 
So their sins are somehow going to be judged. And through this judgment, God will do away with them once and for all. It is through judgment that God shows His mercy. And this is the hope that Micah is spreading throughout his writing. So in each of these three sections that start in chapter 1, 3, and 6, that begin with condemnation and judgment, they all end with hope for restoration. The last two verses of chapter 2, 12 and 13. God promises He's going to gather a remnant out of this destruction and shepherd them as their king. He will be the king to them. Chapter 4 brings this hope to a climax when God rebuilds the city of Jerusalem. He's going to take this remnant, gather them together into a new city that draws all nations to itself. Nations fleeing from wickedness wanting to find rest and peace, wisdom and knowledge from God. There will be abundant food and prosperity in this city when God does His restoration work. And all of it will be accomplished in chapter 5 by a king, a righteous king who is born in the little town of Bethlehem. This king will restore His people. He will rise up from obscurity and Reign from on high. He will conquer His enemies, remove all false worship, restore justice in the land, punish the oppressor, and heal the oppressed. Micah feels this very personally in chapter 7 where the, the perspective switches to the first person and he says, I am being destroyed, but I know that I will rise again because he is confident in God's mercy. How can he be so confident when he looks around and everyone around him, even his closest friends, are full of injustice? How can he have such confidence? Because he looks to the Word. He looks to the promises of God. His own covenantal promises and knows this love that dwells in God. You see in chapter 7, verse 20, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. This is what God promised to their fathers. And He's seen God over and over and over be faithful. He knows He's going to be faithful again. This word for steadfast love is one that we've talked about multiple times already. Jake mentioned it last week. It's this steadfast love that Moses, hiding in the cleft of the rock, saw as God passed by. It's the steadfast covenant love that Joel and Jonah proclaimed. Trust in that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is Micah's foundation. It's a covenant love that's not dependent upon the people, but upon God's own character. His steadfast love isn't based on how lovable or pitiable His people are, but on His own promises. He doesn't look upon sinners and just say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. We'll just brush that one aside and let them try again. I'll give them a second chance. He doesn't look at us like we do toddlers when they're throwing a tantrum and you're like, well, it's kind of cute. They think they're so so powerful that they're, they can't even walk across the room on their own. No, God doesn't look at us like that. God's mercy 
is based upon his own desires to keep his promises to people even when they don't keep, when they don't deserve it. Though we run from him repeatedly, though we mock him with just surface level religious engagement, he still promises to restore a remnant, rebuild the city, destroy sin forever, and pour out his spirit upon his people. All of these provisions in the law, these hints that Micah drops, were simply pointers to a greater fulfillment of all of these hopes. A time when justice and mercy will finally overlap perfectly and be fully satisfied. When our sins will be crushed under the foot of the Savior who will have His foot bruised and cast into the depths of judgment forever. You should see where this is going, I hope. Who is this king from Bethlehem that Matthew chapter 2 writes about? We know that it's Jesus. We go to the New Testament and you just read everywhere as they look back at these old prophets. They see that Jesus is fulfilling every single step along the way. But Jesus is more than just the one that Micah predicted will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is all over the book of Micah. He is the main character of the book of Micah. We don't have time to cover every instance that Jesus is on these pages, but look at chapter 7. I mentioned this already, but the first six chapters show Micah lamenting personally over the destruction of his city. But then chapter this chapter 7, as he focuses on himself, it's no longer in the first six chapters, you, you sin, you are in trouble, you will be saved. It's me. He's lamenting like Isaiah, I'm a people among un, of unclean lips. Help me, God. I can't trust anyone. He's going to be destroyed, he says, but he knows he will rise again. But as he's talking, there's kind of this sense that you get, like, this isn't... Micah. There's more happening here than can just be Micah. Micah's just standing in place of a greater suffering servant who will bear the wrath of God and defeat his enemies forever. This is Christ himself speaking through Micah. He says he's become weak and trampled on like ripe fruit in verse 1. Everyone around him has abandoned him in his weakness, even his closest disciples have abandoned him. Verse 7, though this happens, he will declare trust in God's will. Verse 8, he proclaims with confidence that he will rise again when his enemies defeat him. When he bears the indignation of God, he takes the sin of his people upon himself. He will be exalted then, standing in victory over his enemies. This is Christ speaking through Micah. Our Savior dying on the cross bearing the sins of the world, rising from the dead. This is our Jesus ascended into heaven, reigning over all the earth. The the coming of our Savior is dying on the cross and rising from the dead. This is the only moment in all of history, the only place where justice and mercy have finally come together to reveal to us the beautiful covenant love of God. God both punished sin according to the law, but He also found a legal way for sinners to be set free. We 
we all have this desire for justice and mercy to be done in our lives, right? If someone sins against us, we want the full extent of the law put on them. They ought to be punished. When we sin, we want mercy. God, ignore the law for a little while because I want a second chance. But God will not ignore His justice just to be merciful. If we do wrong, we must be punished. But if that happens, then God will have to wipe out all of humanity because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that kind of defeats the purpose of God creating humanity in the first place. Many people are banking their eternal destiny, their salvation, upon some shallow idea of God being a merciful, forgiving God, but they don't know what that means. Ask the regular person on the street, even many who profess to be Christian, why should God forgive your sins? What's your hope for atoning for your sins? And they'll answer, well, God is a merciful, forgiving God. He's going to let me go. What they're really banking on is that God is unjust, just like all those religious leaders in Israel who are corrupt, just sweeping sin under the rug. That is not our God. He will not be mocked. That is an abomination to His character. God is not unjust. He must punish sin. And so we can't walk around with a little badge on that says, Jesus died for my sins, and then go about living any way we want, as though it's just some good luck charm, some get-out-of-hell-free card, just like the religious leaders would go to the priests and offer a quick sacrifice and they'd be good. God is both merciful and just. The only provision He has given us is Christ bearing the wrath of God so that justice could be satisfied and mercy could be offered. Look only to the covenant love of God fully represented in Christ on the cross. And when you do, you will be saved not only from sin, but to, to a kingdom where justice and mercy flourish. How does it how does this look? How do we have both justice and mercy in our society? The, the conflict is most evident, especially now in this season of political debates and presidential campaigning, right? This two-party system that we see going on puts on display the conflict between these two ideals. On the one hand, you have one party that wants to be known for being the party of mercy and compassion and helping out those in need. On the other side, we've got the party who says, no, we need to be about rule of law and responsibility. And you know what? They both have a point. But they can't ever figure out how they fit together. And they will never figure it out apart from the covenant love of God shown to us in Christ. The only place justice and mercy meet together are in Christ and among His people who have been crucified with Him. So chapter 7 shows us that this suffering servant who bears the wrath of God is going to rebuild a city of justice and mercy. It's going to be a society that's not built by campaigning and protesting, debating and petitioning and boycotting to get a better government system. 
unless our government's built upon Christ, it will never figure out a way for justice and mercy to meet. They will always be at odds. Every time we attempt to enforce the rule of law, we will crush innocent and vulnerable people under feet. As many groups of people can attest to in our society. But on the other side, any time we try to legislate mercy, we end up creating more injustice as we have to steal money from one person to give it to another. Or we have to, in the case of abortion, kill somebody to give life to another. No, God's society rebuilding project is a grassroots movement. It starts with simple, ordinary people like you and me who have died to their desires, died to their right for justice out there in the world, and seek to display the covenant love of God among each other. Micah himself was a prophet from a nowhere village who raised up to give hope to a remnant of people who are vulnerable that God is going to build them into a new city. Christ Himself was from a nowhere town of Bethlehem whom God raised up and sent to the capital city to make a sacrifice for those who are broken and oppressed. And this is our call as a church. A group of nobodies from an insignificant city called to build a counter-society of mercy and justice brought together so that all who are oppressed out there can come among us and find rest. Our call is to lay aside our rights in this world. Don't try to go change the world through Facebook activism and, and political maneuvering, putting your hope in your favorite presidential candidates. Instead, put your efforts into rebuilding Christ's society of people called the church, who among us, the playing field is level. We share our resources with one another. We seek to outdo one another in showing honor so that the world can see how justice and mercy fit together in Christ. And the poor and oppressed, the weak and the vulnerable can find a place among us find safety and provision, joy and hope until He returns and His love covers the earth. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, let's pray. God, we, we want to be that kind of people. We want to be a people who put on display Your covenant love, who love justice and mercy because we are filled with Your Spirit. God, would You make it more clear to us in too many ways, yes, we still cannot see how they fit together. Show us more and more the love of Christ at work in us. And may it overflow from our hearts this amazing mercy that we would give up everything in order to show this love to one another. Amen.